Hello there and welcome to another episode of the 1201 podcast. I'm Callum Roper and today I am joined by Ollie Woolwyn. Hello everyone. Uh, Mr. Callum Watt. And good afternoon everyone. And Bradley Allsop. Hi folks. We've had a week off. We took a week off last weekend so uh, I hope you didn't miss us too much having no podcast to listen to but we are jumping straight back in and it's a very windy day here in Lincoln it's very well very violent outside and indeed it's been quite similar on the streets of Bristol so we'll be looking at the Bristol riots in response to kill the bill protests we'll be looking at the police's response Uh, We'll also dig into some politicians' response from both sides of the Commons, because that's certainly been interesting to watch over the last few days. We'll then also be looking at the other set of protests going on at the moment, the Sarah Everard protests, the vigils that have been taking place up and down the country. Certainly we've seen them here in Lincoln, and they've sparked some debate in terms of how, again, they've been policed, but also the general public's reaction to them. So we'll be getting into that. And finally, we'll round up the podcast speaking about the latest proposals from Priti Patel and the Home Office in regards to our refugee policy. So we'll jump straight back into Bristol. Obviously, the last few, well, the last week or so, we've seen violence on the streets of Bristol. Um, We've also seen protests in other cities around the country. Notably in Manchester, tram lines were blocked by protesters. And this is in response to the, uh, the the latest bill put forward by the government to essentially crush freedom of protest, certainly from the perspective of many as part of these protests. The riots in Bristol, um, we, we had one night of rioting that broke out a few days ago. Uh, There was a number of police vans torched. There were uh, a number of officers injured in the line of duty. And there were a large number of arrests as well. Um, Now, the the timeline of events, we can go through it. There was an initial protest, a peaceful protest, it must be said, at College Green in Bristol. Uh, This was attended by over 3,000 people, socially distanced. It was very peaceful very calm indeed. Um, As the day went on, it appears that a lot of people went home after the protest, but some people remained and moved towards the police station just down the road. Now, again, uh, it seems that there's two um, stories that are being told here. We've got the official line of events that there were plenty of people looking for trouble amongst the protesters that decided that they were going to target the police instead of peacefully protesting. And then there is the other line that potentially the police were using well-known tactics to cause the riot by provoking the crowd. Now, obviously, we've had some subsequent nights of violence in Bristol. Um, the story is, isn't the same, but it's very much a concerning situation. But firstly, we'll talk about the bill. So, uh, Callum, what is your reaction to this bill? And uh, what exactly is the dangers for our democracy if it gets passed? Well, I think the um, big danger is the fact that it effectively allows the Home Secretary to ban any protests she wishes to, uh, her and her successors. 
uh, the protests would be allowed to be banned simply for causing annoyance. Um, and that could be caused by just creating a lot of noise, which is the essence of a, of a protest. Um, and I, I've, frankly, I'm astonished having grown up with this idea of living in a country which considers itself to be a liberal democracy, that this is even that this is even being countenanced by our government. And to be fair, civil society is obviously fighting back uh, in the, the classic British way with petitions and so on. But I think that the, the protests that we are seeing, which are quote-unquote turning violent, are probably an indication of the future if this bill passes, because so many legitimate protests which would otherwise have been performed legitimately uh, in London, mostly, I imagine, um, will be outlawed. And the only way people will be able to press forward is by forcing themselves forward, by, by having to literally fight the police. That is that is the outcome that we're working towards. And it's extremely dangerous, therefore, because the, the whole point of, of allowing peaceful protests to go on is that it allows people to express themselves. And you, you might actually critique that in a way. You could say, oh, certainly I felt in the past that these big marches that you go on. Um, I got a, uh, a Facebook uh, reminder of uh, the March for the Alternative, which I went on uh, 10 years ago now. Um, and... It, my, my feeling from those is that, that that had something like half a million people on it from various trade unions, civil society, and so on. And, you know, it was, a, it was, a, it was an interesting day because you had that legitimate protest which marched peacefully all the way down to Hyde Park. Uh, and there were speeches from, you know, people like uh, Tony Robinson and Mehdi Hassan and Len McCluskey and so on. Um, and then Ed Miliband stood up and, of course, he got booed um, but by almost everyone. Um, and then afterwards, you could take a... I saw a... I remember seeing a helicopter in the distance hovering over um, Oxford Street. Um, so I went to check that out. And it was interesting because you could see it was almost a, a festival of resistance because uh, you had uh, UK Uncut, which was occupying Fortnum and Mason. You had the anarchists, uh, the Black Bloc marching up and down, uh, being slowly tailed by police while, uh, while, they, while they had boom boxes on their shoulders and black masks. The protesters, by the way, not the police. Um, and then you could go all the way down to the ends to Piccadilly Circus, and there were the communists sitting on the, sitting on the, uh, on the, on the statue, uh, waving red flags and singing, singing, um, uh, singing the Nationale. So it was an interesting experience for me um, in that respect. But all of that is permitted to go on because at the end of the day that was just one day of disruption that the capital can swallow and at the end of the day arguably it had very little impact um because you know the next day the roads were clear the shops were reopened um the only really effective protest i would say was probably uk and cut 
but again, it didn't really change anything on the large scale. So that is the way the establishment has traditionally dealt with dissent in this country, is by allowing protests to go on. It's basically a steam valve, basically. But this is this is uh, this is something very different. If you they now want to ban all such protests like that, and it's very I thought it's very hard to see why they want to do that. Um, apart from maybe appealing to their jingoistic base, I don't know. Um, maybe because they feel a bit insecure. Um, I think I think maybe what has changed is the Extinction Rebellion protests in the last year. Because of course, they actually found methods which were much more disruptive, blocking roads being the optimum one, uh, and they've displayed a willingness to take more direct action to disrupt the economy. And I think that has scared them a little bit. And you can see, uh, you know, there were echoes of that with the Black Lives Matter protests this early, earlier this year, and even more dangerous, obviously, with the death of Sarah Everard. Now the police itself, uh, its its uh, authority is being undermined. I know the bill uh, predates that particular incident. But nevertheless, this is a very dangerous time from the government's perspective, and that's why they want to clamp down on protests. But in the long run, um, it's a serious mistake. Um, and, you know, you could argue, or maybe it's a, maybe it's a good thing, because maybe people will... Uh, maybe protests will matter more in a way, but it, it, at the end you have to also take into account that there are probably going to be, if this becomes implemented and stays in place for a long time, hundreds of people are probably going to be killed um, as a consequence because this is a country that is still willing to use cavalry, it's still willing to use military force basically, uh, increasingly to uh, to quell protesters. We now have a prime minister who was willing to use water cannons in the UK, which I don't think have never been used in Great Britain. They've been used in Northern Ireland, of course. Um, doesn't make it right, but there it is this. So, and I have no doubt at all that now he's broken that mold. Um, Boris Johnson's successor will probably have a similar position. So this is a very, very dangerous time for protesters, progressives in this country, um, and it will have unknown effects on the establishment as well. Um, so this is a very, very dangerous bill for our civil society, even if you're not a, a socialist or a progressive necessarily. This is a serious threat to civil society and, and general order, uh, and it needs to be stopped. Yeah, and, and I think the XR point is an important one to make because it did mark a, a change in, in tactics of, of protests. But the interesting point for me in regards to that is that the XR protesters were willing to be arrested. They didn't care if they were arrested or prosecuted because the cause that they were representing was bigger than that. So I don't see how making protests uh, illegal is going to change anything about how they're going to go about their protests or indeed subsequent protest movements, how they're going to make an, an impact because they'll still do it. They'll still do it. It's not going to change this, this perceived threat to the government, uh, at least in the short to long term or in, 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 in any factor. I don't think it's going to have any impact really, apart from, as you say, it's going to just make protests far more volatile in situations if you're going to have a militarised police with more powers trying to crack down 
on them. Ollie, I'm keen to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, I think these are such important issues, um, uh, specifically yeah, in, in regard to um, to exile activists who arguably have done more in the past few years for democracy than the most Tory MPs. Um, I think it's I think a lot of change in the last few years um, politically has come from um, these kind of protests, and they are so, uh, a cornerstone for our our functioning democracy. Um, and I'm sure at the time, um, you know, people thought the the suffragettes cause was was a serious annoyance and and um, minor strikes and and stuff like that. And it's just it's fundamental as far as I'm concerned. Um, and the thing is, all the cabinet ministers will turn around and say how important it is about a right to protest. Um, and and then they'll, you know, specifically Priti Patel will, will, will kind of shape this bill. And it's an extremely kind of scary time to, to be to be around because it's so wholly um, supported by, um, you know, the whole kind of mainstream media as well, who who really kind of legitimised their their campaign for this bill. Um, this is something they they thought they could um, you know float by Parliament without any kind of proper scrutiny um, or any kind of voices heard from any kind of campaigners. Um, and it's it's just it's it's really kind of frustrating that it's uh, it's happening that they think they can get away with it. Um, whatever their kind of thought was, maybe they were shocked so I could actually disrupt the economy but you know at the time I remember it was um, September last year and they were describing um, these methods of peaceful protest as a, an attack on capitalism which is just absurd because uh, you know uh, specifically about the incident um, of blocking um, blocking the roads so that um, Rupert Murdoch couldn't print his papers and, and get them out on the right times in the morning as an attack on capitalism I mean seriously it's just it's ridiculous um and you know it's been incredibly eye-opening and eventually um xr did actually manage to um get the government to admit that there was a, a climate emergency although there seemed to be much action after that but uh, that's besides the point you know these these protests actually they, they work and i think that's what they're really soft um and i, I think these uh protests in bristol are absolutely right um, and the way that they've been reported is quite eye-opening as well by by the mainstream media, um, who describe every kind of every incident that happened in the protests as an attack on the police, um, which is really conflicting to a lot of things which I'm seeing online, really. Yeah, and 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 I really wanted to get into into that as part of our our next sort of analysis as part of these these riots is. The, the series of events, as I outlined in the introduction, appeared to be contradictory between the police and the protesters at the actually there. So, uh, Bradley, I'd, I'd like to bring you in on this. What What is your perspective of, obviously, you weren't there and you, neither are you a member of, of the police uh, force, so you wouldn't understand that their mindset, but how... How how would you describe what actually happened? Because it's very difficult using um, some of the mainstream media to actually understand what what went on. Because the the narrative is that it was a group of thugs that turned up looking for a fight, and perhaps there was a minority amongst the the protests there. But uh, what seems to have happened from your perspective, Bradley? 
Yeah, I mean, there, there are conflicting accounts. I, I've heard different accounts of what's happened. Um, uh, you know, this is now several different events, really, isn't it, that, in, in Bristol that have happened over a number of different evenings. I think it's really interesting the time in which this bill is coming forward um, because we're in a situation as the left now. I think particularly for younger people, you know, we're in one of the most bizarre 18 months that any of us have ever lived through. Um, with lockdown um, and, and all the restrictions imposed by lockdown, but also a government that has utterly, utterly failed um, the people of the UK in, in tackling um, and, and responding to COVID, um, at least up until the vaccination point. Uh, just before the lockdown started, you know, months before, um, the, the most left-wing leader the Labour Party had in a generation was resoundingly defeated in a general election. Um, and now the party, yeah, you look at the party nationally, it's increasingly just going back to, to the status quo sort of politics. Um, I, th- I think we've seen pretty much a, co- a complete failure of leadership by Keir Starmer at this point. Um, and and on, on the horizon, you know, you've got climate change, which is going to make COVID look like a walk in the park compared to what's coming with, with climate change. So, yeah, you've increasingly got, huge segments of the population i think particularly younger people but but others on the left or or even the centers um of course you know all of that's a backdrop to all of that as well is is the general failures of of late stage capitalism Um, and it's complete inability to provide for people and and produce rising wages and all the rest of it for over a decade now um and you know where's the hope for change i don't think a lot of people look at you know, there was a chance where people rallied around Corbyn and 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 maybe saw a, a route to change there, and that seems to have been shut off to to some people. So increasingly, I think we're going to see people turn to protest because what what are the other outlets for them? A lot, rightly or wrongly, a lot of people will look at the Labour Party and, and more broadly parliamentary politics and and not have much confidence in that changing anything. So I think protest is going to become increasingly more common. Maybe maybe we'll see more uh, more people join in with Extinction Rebellion or, or other groups. Um, so so on the one hand you've got that, but on the on the other hand you've got uh, a very authoritarian bill passing through Parliament that's going to try and restrict and, and criminalise exactly that um, frustrated political expression. So I think I think that is a a really toxic mixing pot where you could really see tensions rise and you could see more events like what we've seen in Bristol. Um, whether that's because it comes from the police and, and, and a government that's putting pressure on the police to stamp down on protest, or whether it's because protesters uh, and, and individuals within a, within a protest movement um, are frustrated and, and maybe make, take some actions that are advised, or you'll, you'll have both of those things happening in a protest. So I, I don't think this is the last time we'll see this over the next few years. Um, and it's, a, it's maybe a worrying place for us to go as a democracy. Absolutely. And um, I think one of the interesting things, speaking to young people here in Lincoln uh, that really don't have an interest in party politics, um, they don't have the historical allegiances that you might expect um, for young people to have to the Labour Party, for example. They don't really consider themselves to be that engaged with politics, but they do have core issues they care about. And they care about the climate crisis, they care about 
social justice and they care about ensuring that people are safe in and around the city amongst other things and i think as as a labor party i suppose this the last part of this is where do we stand in this situation where do we make ourselves relevant again because if the channels for protest are being shut off and apparently the only legitimate way to um, take part is either through a so-called legitimate protest or through a trade union which are increasingly being closed down by by legislation or through a political party so how how do we bring young people and activists back into the Labour Party when it appears that quite a few of them it's it's not even just over over the last 18 months or so but it's a historical trend only really broken by by the likes of Corbyn so how do we do that I've got Bradley then Callum yeah just on the Labour Party and their response to this bill specifically I think it it was disappointing because there was at one point um, the intention was to abstain on the bill actually um, by the Labour Party and then I think I, I don't know if it was just because of, of everything that happened with Sarah Everard and, 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 the, and the vigil, um, but I think that probably contributed to, to the decision to change their mind and oppose the bill. Um, but to me, it, it's concerning that you know the instinct should absolutely have been to go out all guns blazing against that bill. Um, and it, it's concerning that that wasn't the initial reaction um, from the Labour Party at the moment. As for, as for how we encourage people to get involved in the Labour Party, um, I, I've long taken the philosophy that you do the good where you can. Um, so I, I don't know if necessarily that's even the right question. I don't know if it's about convincing young people to engage with the Labour Party. I think it's about encouraging young people to engage in so, social change and fighting for social change. And and if in their local area that looks like the Labour Party because there's there's good local politicians or you know the Labour Party's got got a shot at taking a council of the Tories and and the people that will be elected are you know genuinely in, in favour of social justice and, and we use use their voice in council to do that they, they're great get get young people signed up and, and explain that to them and, and show them what the route to change is and, and how the Labour Party is involved in that um, but it might not always exclusively look like that it, it might be the, the best thing for someone to do in their local area um, such as I don't know Brighton for instance um, or maybe even Bristol um, is actually to join the Greens um, and, and campaign for the Greens or it might be uh, they get involved in Extinction Rebellion um, and and you know help help grow their local Extinction Rebellion group. So do you see what I mean? I, I don't know if necessarily the question is about how do we get them into the Labour Party. I think the question is about how do we how do we equip and and and, and give people young people confidence to be able to engage in social change and 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 to to give. I I think it's about giving people hope that we can actually change things, um, but then also practical steps as well. Protest is absolutely critical for answering this question, and I think because and I think that because it's a place for education as much as it is for actual resistance. Um, I think at the moment we do have when if you're talking about the Labour Party, uh, we clearly have a, a leadership which is uh, more interested in being part of the establishment, and I think that if Keir Starmer does come to power as Prime Minister, protest is going to be as important as it was during, if not more so, uh, than during the Blair years, for instance. Um, 
And uh, the reason I say it's just as much about uh, education, why it's important uh, to the left and to, to the Labour Party, um, as it comes from comes from my own experience, right? You know, before twenty ten, you know, I was quite a, a starry eyed sort of social democrat. You know, very much sort of. You know, as I've said as I said many times before, I'm sure. Um, I had quite a rose tinted view of New Labour. Um, I thought that the, the the documentaries about the poll tax riots and about the miners' strike or police brutality it was all in the past um and it had been you know sort of done away with basically by by a competent labor government um then of course i went to the the uh, student protests in 2010 and we stormed millbank tower and saw the reaction of the police to that um and it was the police on that occasion that provoked it i'm absolutely certain about that um because i saw it you know they turned up in riot gear and they started uh, started basically attacking people so that was a radicalizing radicalizing moment for me so even if your leadership as it is the case at the moment um is not functioning as it should i think we need to be looking ahead uh, at how we're fostering the next generation of uh, progressive activists. Um, and we got that during the years, dur- during the new Labour years and also between 2010 and 2015, because there would have been many, many people who went on those um, student protests and the subsequent protests protests afterwards. And, you know, when you're walking along, you pick up leaflets, you talk to people, um, and I think one of the, 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 the experiences that um, uh, a lot of people find most shocking about that, of course, um, is attending the protest, having a really good time, listening to the speeches, um, making a lot of noise, uh, and then maybe go, going home and, and maybe seeing it as, as item three or four on the news. Um, and it's a completely different story to whatever they experienced. And so not only are you being taught then about uh, the situation as it stands by reading those protests, by attending those speeches, by attending the the meetings to organise action for those protests, um, but you're also then subsequently learning something about uh, the British media and the way it then treats people like you, because by that point, it is people like you. You've been to a protest. You are one of those uh, activists that is trying to change the world, and they are against you. So it's a critical part of your uh, of your education. That then, I think, because I'm not sure, you know, joining the Greens is particularly useful because of the way our political system is set up. Um, join join the Labour Party because at the end of the day, if Keir Starmer falls, we need people to be ready to take advantage of that. But if he succeeds, then we need pressure from inside and outside in order to uh, make his government the best that it can be and stop this sort of authoritarian uh, trundling uh, that our uh, that our state is on at the moment. So protest is absolutely critical and it needs to be defended. And, and as I said earlier, if this bill pass, it passes, the sorts of scenes that you saw in London and in Bristol most recently, are going to become the norm 
and they will be radicalizing moments for people i think um more so than perhaps the the government realizes very very dangerous time in in, in politics but uh, and and for for civil society in general as i say but we need to defend the right to protest by by all the means that we can absolutely and uh with that i think we'll move on to our next topic that we're going to talk about we're going to be speaking about the sarah everard vigils um we did cover them on the last podcast um and it was uh i think it was great we were lucky enough to have val moore on and she she helped us um tackle that unfortunately we we couldn't get a guest on from any of the vigils being held in lincoln we did try um and i think that that would have been very helpful but obviously the police reaction to the vigils in london was horrific and we commented it on at the t- on it at the time and it was just the fact that it was a vigil being attacked by riot police um was it it was a scene that i don't think any of us even expected even with the record potentially of the Met- metropolitan police when it comes to protests and gatherings of people but i think the important thing that we need to take out of this is is yes the the police have been atrocious in 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 regards to this instance and indeed regards to bristol but there's also the 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 human element that we need to take out of this because actually if you looked around lincoln in the last week there was chalk um writings and 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 uh and and statements and pictures all over the city from women girls people that had experienced gender violence that had uh, maybe been targeted on a night out maybe the targeted at home maybe when they're walking home from work um and obviously that big standout number <clears throat> excuse me that big standout number was the 97% the fact that 97% of women and girls have experienced some sort of gender based violence or sexual assault and that's absolutely un- unacceptable so i think the important thing that we've learned so far in this and i'm going to open it up to the rest of you from my perspective is the education the fact that the police attacked the vigil was a horrible thing but actually it brought the issue to the forefront people actually are speaking about gender in relation to society and our society is very much a a, a male-centric society if you look at people in positions of power by and large i'm willing to bet that there would be a man because that is how it's structured and that's unacceptable because with power comes abuse of power and we have that culture of of abuse of power ongoing but i think that coming back to the protests in lincoln um the the chalk markings and and the the vigils being held at, at numerous sites i think what it's shown is that actually the community here can come together and say that we've we've addressed it we we see this issue and we want it to be addressed we actually want action and obviously that this is just the first step and we're gonna again i'll open it out but um i think that the the education and, and the opening of eyes to the problem that our society faces at the moment the problem that our society has faced for for generations when it comes to violence against women and girls is 
is is something that we need to talk about. And yes, we are four men speaking about this, and and we we would rather it's not just us essentially mansplaining the issue, but we're going to try and give it the justice that it deserves. Ollie. Yeah, I think it's um, it's it's something that's incredibly important. Um, and if you talked about the statistic that you referenced, the ninety-seven percent um, of 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 women were have been sexually harassed. You know, it's 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 obvious for the the women because they're the ones experiencing it, and uh, it would come as no surprise to them that ninety percent of of ninety-seven percent of women in the UK had been. Um, sexually harassed because they're the ones being experienced uh, having having that put on um, but maybe that came as um, a shock to a lot of um, you know a lot of men who uh, who weren't necessarily the ones doing the sexual harassment if that makes sense um, I think the wider issue you know it's part of a really as you say we live in an extremely patriarchal patriarchal society and I think that the the time for change um on that is now um and i think the the sarah everard visual um you know really illustrated the fact that you had um these police officers many who were male but also so some were female were um were kind of very violently breaking up this this vigil um and it was an incredibly pivotal moment I think um, you know when there's calls for the police the chief of police for the metropolitan police crusader dick to resign um, and it was a move that was widely condemned even by politicians such as Priti Purcell who was trying to um, put through uh, parliament the police crime and sentencing court bill which we talked about earlier um, so you know that there's the issue of whether she should have um, resigned as she was you know one of the most the most senior um, woman who is who is in the in the police, but um, and whether that would have been counterproductive. But I don't necessarily agree with those arguments just because she's a woman. But that's, that's a separate issue, I think. Um, the issue is education, I think, as you say, and um, I think the more um, the more of this that we hear about and the more that we read about um, is incredibly important. And if we, as as for white white males absolutely need to educate ourselves on the fact that just because um, this isn't being experienced by us, it doesn't mean it's not happening. Absolutely. And I think I'd, I'd echo those comments exactly from, from Ollie. And, and it's important that we do educate ourselves and we're, we're certainly not here to, to um, hijack the, the, the debate, but I think it's important that we play our part in making that change. Uh, Callum, you wanted to come in. Yeah, I think it's it's our job to be uh, supportive, isn't it, at the end of the day, and, and raise the voices of women. Okay, we've not been able to uh, get someone on to speak today, but um, just when you go to political meetings, take a back seat. Let, let women talk, you know, try and encourage women and girls to get involved in protests and politics and to lead them. Um, you know, we do have that sort of compulsion as, as political activists to uh, need to talk at, uh, at any meeting. Um, but I think, it's in, I think it's very important to uh, let, 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 women, let women speak because you do learn things. Um, I did find it interesting or amusing. Uh, I came across 
one of those short markings on a wall the other day. Um, can't remember exactly what it said. I think it just said end male violence or something like that. Um, and then sort of about 50 yards away, uh, there was a, a police van uh, just, just, just kind of sitting there. I was like, okay, apparently this is Lincolnshire police's attempt at subtlety, maybe. Um, but uh, no, I thought the uh, the short protests were good. Um, obviously, it drew it drew some attention. Um, so yeah, I think uh, hopefully they can keep up their momentum, and we'll be we'll be supportive of it. And hopefully, in due course, we can have someone to uh, to, uh, to talk about it uh, from them uh, in due course. Yeah, and I think that this is certainly something as a as a podcast we we would want to return to because it's still an issue in society and it's a huge issue. It's not just a, a small side note. So I think if we could get somebody else on to speak about that, that would be fantastic. But I wanted to speak about the role of the police in this. Um, we obviously, in the specifics of this case, um, confidence in the police has been significantly undermined where it already wasn't undermined i think that when it comes to the police we have to recognize that these are the people that are meant to be keeping us safe um and if we lose that confidence in them where are we left as a society where are we going to go from here because i think that the police has a a big role in, in making sure people feel safe. But if those people that are there to protect us are the ones that are causing problems, attacking vigils, people that are mourning somebody that has been murdered, I think that we have a, a, a long way to go indeed. Uh, Bradley, I'll bring you in on this. What's, what's the police got to do now to restore that confidence in, in them and obviously serve the communities in a way that they should? think you're on mute if you're talking badly yeah sorry um yeah i th- i think um i think there's a, a wider question around what what it is we expect the police to do um and, and what they what their role in society really should be um so i think there's you know uh, particularly around the time of the black lives matter uh movement uh, and, and and all the protests last year there, there was talks about defunding the police um which I think are often misconstrued because people see that as ba- basically scale down the police and then and then do nothing else. Um, but obviously that that's not the argument. The argument is looking quite closely at what the role what role police currently play in society and asking are police always the most appropriate institution to be dealing with issues. So in, instead of putting more more funding into the police or resources or training for the police, the question is about actually should we the, the amount of money we would spend on on extra policing or or new training for police or new resources police could would it actually make more sense to spend that money on um mental health services or um you know various support for, for young for young people uh, you know like like community centers youth centers those sorts of things so it i i think a big part of it is asking questions around what is it do we expect police to deal with like do should it be police that deal with homeless people? Should it should it be police that deal with people that are mentally ill? 
you know, all, all these sorts of questions, I think we need to ask ourselves as a society about what, what exactly is the purpose of the police? What's its role in our society? Um, and are there actually things that they're doing that would be better served by other institutions and maybe we should be giving those institutions money instead? And yeah, I think that's a, a, a good approach there. Widen it out because I think you're absolutely right that it's not just the responsibility of the police um, to to solve these problems. It, it certainly is a societal issue that we have to tackle. Um, but it, it's going to take a lot of work. I can see that clearly the direction that we're traveling in now is a, a far more beefed up police force in terms of powers, in terms of equipment, than we've seen in a long time. Um, I think that really what we need to be looking to is, is a community-based model of policing, where police work with the community to solve the issues that are important to them. Uh, they work with the community to ensure that they feel safe, and they work with a community to build that relationship, because I think that a lot of ties between communities and the police have been severed partly due to actions of the police and partly due to cuts to um, community policing by the conservative government and the coalition government so we'll move on to our, our last topic for today that is the story that Priti Patel has again proposed some changes to refugee or asylum seeker policy. She, you'll remember a couple of weeks ago uh, or a couple of months ago, we discussed the proposals to perhaps, they they did propose that we would send or process asylum seekers on a remote Atlantic island. I think that that has long been kicked into the grass. It was a ridiculous idea. It was never going to work. And what was, you know, where's the morals in that? just to keep refugees as far away as possible from the mainland. But again, we, we've now seen a re-emergence of this sort of idea of trying to discourage people um, from seeking asylum in the UK. So Priti Patel has proposed that essentially we have two classes now of refugee or two classes of asylum seeker. The first class are the asylum seekers that have sought to come into the country legally, and that's quoting legally in the eyes of the government. The second class of refugee is the people that have sought to come into the country illegally. Again, that's quoting from the government. Now, this distinction is is worrying from my perspective because that means, well, you first you've got to remember the situation that a lot of refugees and asylum seekers are in they're desperate they're fleeing for their lives they're willing to do anything to reach a safe and secure country where their family is going to be safe where they're going to be safe and they've got a hope for the future instead uh, they they now look at a britain that is increasingly defensive against refugees and actually if you look at historical numbers we've never really been that hospitable to refugees from outside of europe so we, we're certainly in a in a continuation of a, of a long-term trend here of opposing refugees but what this new system would mean is that basically we can cherry pick uh, asylum seekers from legitimate 
um, from legitimate channels. So that would be some of the camps that we're supporting um, very much at, at arm's length away from the country. So these are camps in Syria, uh, in, in Turkey and some of the neighboring countries around there. We also got the approach of if you are coming here illegally, then you're very unlikely to be processed um, in the same way as somebody that's come here legally. Uh, one of the biggest problems with this, I think, is the fact that it contradicts international law. International law states that we must process all asylum-seeking claims without prejudice. We've got to look at their cases as they come in. And it seems to me that we're now moving away from that. We're now discriminating on the basis of how they got here. But actually, if they're that desperate to get here, then surely they're in a in a worse situation. But we'll I'll open it out. Callum, what's your take on this? Well, obviously, it's a very uh, subtle attempt to just try and give the government more leeway to treat refugees even worse than they already do. I mean, I have no doubt if the place wasn't full of um, tax dodgers that they would probably be using Guernsey, Guernsey and Jersey as, um, as as places to house uh, refugees. That's why they proposed St. Helena, which is a territory that we happen to own uh, a quarter of the world away. Um, completely uh, off the wall, insane, frankly, if you'll excuse the, 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 the language. Um, so uh, that they are uh, and grotesquely inefficient as well. They're quite, they're quite willing to... I think we have to be clear that they're doing all of this not because they have to or think they think that there's a a real uh, advantage economically, socially, whatever, to doing it. It's entirely ideological. They want to be seen to be bashing um, migrants wherever they come from, um, whether it's Eastern Europe or the Middle East uh, or, or wherever else, especially if they have brown or black skin. Um, that's entirely what it's all about it's, and it's going to uh, fundamentally get worse um, that's why it needs to be effectively opposed um, in parliament and out of parliament um, as well because it has an impact then on our community cohesion as well if the government's saying that we want to keep these people out inevitably the, the people already in the country are going to turn to people who look or sound a little bit different um, and start saying, well, why don't you go as well? Um, so that's what this is all about. And I don't expect it to end here. Um, and uh, I think we need to remember to stick up for our friends and neighbours always. Absolutely. And uh, just a, a statistic that I, I thought was quite eye-opening. So there are, yeah, there are 29.6 million refugees forcibly displaced, displaced across the world. The UK only has 1% of that. And this is a, a, a large economy. This is a, a, a country that arguably has, has its part to play as a as a uh, as an aggressor in some of these conflicts as somebody that's contributed 
to the displacement of many people in the Middle East and beyond. We are not playing the part that perhaps certain people on the right would like to say that we are, saying that we're being swarmed by refugees and asylum seekers and migrants. We're not. The simple fact is we are not. If you compare us to other European countries, we are not taking anywhere near the numbers of the likes of Germany, for example, who have taken in excess of a million in a year, certainly after 2015 with the so-called crisis uh, that we faced in the Mediterranean. So I think that certainly the UK is not doing its fair share as it currently stands. So to go and aspire to cut the numbers again seems to me to be absolutely bonkers. And actually, when you look at the contribution that so many refugees make to our society, how can you turn this down? These are people looking to rebuild a life. These are people that have chosen a country because it's a place of safety, a place to rebuild, a place of hope. And instead, we're turning them away and turning away their contribution and what they can offer to society. Ollie? It makes you wonder, doesn't it? It makes you wonder what kind of society um, people that so vehemently uh, oppose them want to live in. Um, and it, it sounds entirely um, kind of, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say segregated almost. Um, yeah, as a country, we, we do not play our, our role, as you say, and we, we don't take as many people as um, other countries in Europe do um, that are similarly sized economies. Um, and I think what you touched on there about our, our role in this and um, how much uh, we are kind of almost morally responsible for, um, I think that's a really important issue because our, our arms trade is absolutely huge um, to, to countries like Saudi Arabia. Uh, we, have, we essentially fund wars um, and it, it's been ongoing um, for the past you know, 20 years or 30 years in, in the Middle East. And I don't think that can be ignored, really. But I feel like it is ignored in a lot of the, the rhetoric in this country. Um, and I feel like that has a lot to uh, it has a lot to do with it. Um, you mentioned as well about um, you know people on the right, particularly Nigel Farage, who's got like a, some kind of death wish against anyone who isn't the same colour as him. Um, you know, and he he has a He's shaped the rhetoric in this country more than any other um, kind of fringe politician who isn't really of any main party. Um, and he'll do stupid things on social media, like go to the hotels where these migrants are staying and, and film them and, and kind of make them out to be terrible people. Um, and he'll, he'll go to the coast and, and try and spot my dinghies or, or whatever. It's just ridiculous. And um, I think, you know, the mainstream media has got a lot to um, to be responsible for um, in shaping our kind of public opinion on this. Um, um, but also, I just think, um, I, don't, I just think, um, you know, the whole idea of uh, having people, as you mentioned as well, uh, having people on the other side of the world, on, on colonies we own in these, in these kind of institutions, it's just some kind of um, it's just some kind of pipe dream, isn't it? I don't think it was ever really going to be a sensible idea, um, and it makes you wonder when these people are at the top of government and kind of floated really weird, uh, fetishized ideas of, of migrants. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think the sort of sensationalism around immigration that we've seen certainly for the last few decades has has really poisoned the political debate when it comes to anything in relation to migration. And I think that another fact that we should always point out is up until the the 1970s, actually, there was more emigration from the UK than there was immigration to the UK. So historically, we've been a country that has been sending more people out than we've been taking in. So we have to remember that as part of a trend. Another fact that I got from the Refugee Council, and they, they have a fantastic report that they've put out, um, and they give some really eye-opening numbers when it comes to uh, refugees and asylum seekers and, and their relation to the UK. In the UK, most as- asylum seekers are often living on a home office support, which is an equivalent to £5.66 per day. Again, this is completely contradictory to the numbers that we are being told by the right and the people that want to stir up hate against migrants and refugees. Again, we see that the narrative in the media is a narrative that is incorrect. They are not a huge financial burden, and it's the morally right thing to do. But it seems to be that this government is cracking down, as they like to use that sort of language, on refugees and asylum seekers. Thank you all for joining me. Any last thoughts from Ollie? Yeah, just a, a quick quote, if I will, uh, from, from Owen Jones. He says, um, our democracy was not given to us as an act of goodwill and charity by the powerful. It was fought for a great cost and great sacrifice by people who were often at the police, spat out on the street, demonised by the media and thrown into jail cells. I think that's quite an important um, idea as we've talked so much about our democracy in this in this podcast. Absolutely. Our, our democracy has been fought for. It wasn't just bestowed upon us. And I think that that's something we should always appreciate and always continue to fight for where our democracy is under attack. Callum, any concluding thoughts? I honestly couldn't put it better myself. Brilliant stuff. And Bradley, any closing thoughts? Yeah, just that I think we... I think we need to think as as lockdown means to ease how how we mobilise. I think as the left, um, I think with 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 the the bill the choice is trying to put through, um, with with the issues ongoing with the Labour Party, um, as we come out of lockdown, as we look at climate change, I think I think we need to start mobilising and preparing. I think absolutely, and that is the call to arms. And obviously, we're recording this on the twenty eighth of March. On the 29th, the rule of six is back. Uh, No doubt we'll have some coverage as we go on through the lifting of lockdown restrictions and seeing how that takes the numbers in terms of coronavirus. And it's a goodbye from me, Callum Roper, and a goodbye from Ollie. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye from Callum. Goodbye. And a goodbye from Bradley. Bye, folks. Stay safe. You've been listening to the podcast 1201 and we will see you next time.